0: ready to pray? Let's fold our hands and let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you for this box. Thank you that somewhere far away some child is going to open this box and know that he or she is loved. And we pray that you would work powerfully in that child's life And we pray that you would work powerfully in each of our lives as well. Please do that this morning and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thanks. Okay, everybody this way. Okay, I got some extra men's retreat uh, brochures here, so no excuses, you all know the drill. you want to get out your sermon outline, and it says, Kingdoms in Conflict on it. Before we get there, I just have one other announcement to make, as many of you know, we were on the verge of hiring uh, new director of student ministries, and uh, that has gotten delayed. And so, in the interim, uh, we have hired Ben Hammer as an interim director of student ministries. We'll be starting uh, end of month, beginning of December. We haven't worked out all the dates and details yet, uh, but lead us into the new year and help bridge uh, that gap. So we're delighted to have. Ben, uh, over here, on board, Ben has a heart for your students, and that also means that now you have to pray for him regularly, often, that would be good, so, the, uh, we are at the end of Exodus 6, the uh, first half of Exodus 7 today, so you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, or on your tablets or device or whatever you have, or you can look along in the uh, bulletin insert. Uh, But one way or the other, you want to get God's Word in front of you. uh, So we'll be picking up at Exodus 6, verses 28 uh, through Exodus 7, verse 13. Please listen carefully as this is God's Word. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet." You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need this account of your work to bring your people out of the house of slavery in Egypt. Help us by your grace to learn the lessons of Exodus. Would you open our hearts to understand and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, as he has offered to us in the gospel. Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying? Would you tune out all of the competing voices that demand our attention and help us listen to you such that we turn from every counterfeit claim and every false god and turn instead to the Lord, our refuge and strength. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need to see the glory of the Lord. We need Jesus. We need a rescuer, a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. We need the salvation found only in him. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ in Exodus. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, on the night of April 14th, 1912, a man named Cyril Evans was working as the telegraph operator on the SS Californian on a voyage across the Atlantic. And late that night, Cyril Evans was ordered by the captain to warn all the other ships in the area of a large ice field that had brought the SS Californian to a standstill. Cyril Evans quickly complied. He warned all the ships in the area that were approaching the ice field. Meanwhile, in the wireless room aboard one of the ships, the Titanic, operator Jack Phillips was trying to get through a backlog of messages that were supposed to be sent to the United States when he received Cyril Evans' warning about the ice field. And because the SS Californian was so close to the Titanic, And Cyril Evans had his wireless set turned to full power. He almost blew the headset off of Jack Phillips' head. And Phillips, frustrated at the interruption, was furious with Evans and rebuked him and completely failed to relay the warning about the ice to the bridge of the Titanic. For his part, Cyril Evans, believing himself to have fulfilled his orders, turned off his set, and went to bed. Needless to say, a short time later, all the warnings unheeded, cruising at full steam, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank to the bottom, losing over 1,500 souls. It's a tragic tale. And yet, the all-too-human responses of Jack Phillips and Cyril Evans resonate with us, how easily that we might respond just like them. Jack Phillips, angry at the loud transmission blaring in his ear, dismissing the warning out of hand. Cyril Evans shrugging off the lack of a response and just heading off to to bed. Both of them ignoring what was facing them and the Titanic sailing into danger. The truth is, just like these two men, most of us are afflicted with the dreadful disease of selective hearing. You may have heard of that before. Uh, Most of you have probably been accused of that at one time or another. We only listen some of the time. And we tune out an awful lot of what we think doesn't concern us. And as we return this morning to our studies of Exodus... We've come to a passage that is concerned uh, largely with the failure of people to listen. The failure to listen. And you can see that in in our text, actually numerous times. If we go back a few verses, and you take a look with me, we go back to Exodus 6, verse 9. It says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And then in 6.12, chapter 6, verse 12, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And then in verse 30, part of our text today, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Repeating what he said back in verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And finally, verse 13, our last verse today, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is a passage about the different reasons people have for not listening to God when he speaks in his word. And as we see, just as Jack Phillips' failure to listen to Cyril Evans' warning that night aboard uh, the Titanic had brought tragic consequences, a refusal to listen to God when he speaks will also have tragic consequences for us. And so it's really imperative that we have ears open to the word of God and the warnings of his word that we listen to so that our souls are safe and secure in this life while we wait for his return and the life to come. And so we start at the end of chapter 6 with hardened hearing. Hardened hearing. It says, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So last week we looked at the rest of Exodus 6 up to verse 27, and we noticed how Moses responds to the word of God. If the Israelites were the discouraged people of God, then Moses is the fearful servant of God. And the people have rejected Moses' encouragements. They've shunned his every attempt at comforting them. And yet God, nevertheless, presses Moses to follow through on his mission and go to Pharaoh. We see that in Exodus 6, verse 11. It says, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And Moses, true to form, at least as we've seen so far, begins to argue with God. That usually isn't very effective. But Moses isn't like the Israelites here. He's not wallowing in his misery. He isn't denying God's sovereignty. He isn't giving in to fatalism. But look what he's doing at verse 12, Exodus 6, verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Now we get the same complaint here in our text, verses 28 through 30. God sends Moses with a message to Pharaoh, And Moses responds, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, if someone's uncircumcised, it meant they weren't prepared. They were not fit for the Lord's service. Moses found that out the hard way back in Exodus 4, when on his return journey to Egypt, he had left his son uncircumcised, and the Lord almost took his life. So to be uncircumcised is to be unfit, unprepared for service to God. And that's what Moses is saying here about his lips. He's saying they're not fit for service. And so he appeals to the response of God's people so far as evidence of his uselessness as he's now called to go to Pharaoh. He says, if the people of God won't listen to me, what chance do I have with this pagan Pharaoh? Now you see what's happening here. Moses is complaining to God about the other people not listening, when the truth is, he's not listening himself. He has totally misunderstood God's call on his life. He seems to think it's his task to make Pharaoh agree with God or to make Israel agree with God. No wonder he feels unqualified for this task. He's laboring under the impression that it's his responsibility to secure the right outcome for this mission. But Moses' work is not to make other people embrace God's message any more than that's your work. It's not to make other people embrace the message, it's simply to be faithful in proclaiming the message. The response is God's business, not our business. It's God's work to open uh, blind eyes, and to unstop dead ears. It's our work to proclaim the word of God. And so Moses is reluctant to obey because Moses thinks that God's asking him to do something that only God can do. No wonder he's reluctant. You'd be reluctant too. If you were called to do something that only God could do, no wonder he's arguing with God. However, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power belongs to God. The verse just before that says, For God, uh, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, penetrates the darkness by the decree and will of God. Our task is to preach Christ crucified. It's God's work to unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes and take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh to soften hard hearts or perhaps, as we'll see, to harden them. As Paul puts it earlier in 2 Corinthians 2, He says, our message to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And that's what our preaching and teaching does. For some, it's a word of judgment, and for others, a word of mercy. But it's the same word. And it's God's business when it's judgment and when it's mercy. And so just like Moses and just like Paul, we cry Who is sufficient for these things? And yet our business is the same as Moses and the same as Paul's. As he says later in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And there's an implicit warning in all of this. If we think it's our task, particularly those of us charged with the ministry of the word through preaching and teaching, but I think it's relevant to all of us as we seek to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. If we think it's our task to make other people believe, then we're building into the very foundations of our thinking, the beginning of burnout and paralyzing insecurity that will inevitably follow that conviction. It's a call that you can never fulfill because it's not your call in the first place. It's the work of God. Moses will have to learn that as Paul was forced to learn that and as we all have to learn that. God will do God's work in God's way in God's time. Our task is um, not to act instead of God. Our task is to be a willing instrument in the hand of God. And so first, the people of God refuse to listen to him because of their discouragement. And then second, God's servant, Moses, refuses to listen because of his insecurity and his fear. He has misunderstood his mission, and it is paralyzing him. And yet, what we're told here is repeated numerous times in the Scripture. If you jump forward a little bit to Exodus 7, verse 4. Notice how God puts it there. Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. So God's telling Moses, Moses, the point is not that you're going to convince Pharaoh. Let me just tell you ahead of time, you're not. And it's not if, but when he doesn't listen to you. Then I'm going to do something else. But you're part of the plan. And if we jump ahead to Exodus 11, notice again, now this Exodus 11, this is coming after all the plagues. Ten plagues, getting worse and worse. Each plague taking on a false god. And so you have all this dramatic acts of judgment. And then we read in Exodus 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses' function is not to be the instrument whereby God gains the victory. God stresses to Moses that he himself, God, by himself is the one who will gain the victory. Moses is only called to be faithful. Moses' task is important to what God intends to do. Please don't misunderstand. God's giving Moses a very important task. It's important to the witness that God is going to raise up to himself in both Egypt and Israel but it will not be Moses' persuasive words or Moses' persuasive acts, and it won't be Aaron's that's going to bring about this victory. God himself will bring about this victory. So very briefly, let me ask you to jump forward to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7. Get there into the major prophets after Psalms and Proverbs. Just after Isaiah, you'll find Jeremiah. And you get God's commission to Jeremiah. Now, what would you do if this was God's commission to you? This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, verse 27. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Thanks, God. The Lord explains over and over to Jeremiah that he's going to send him as a prophet to Israel, and Israel's not going to listen to him. Now, what do you say to that? Well, that doesn't make sense. And yet God has a reason. Now jump to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. Just keep going a little bit to your right. First, in Ezekiel 3, God says the same thing to Ezekiel. You have this great passage. God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll of his word, and Ezekiel says it tastes like honey uh, to his mouth. And then look what he says, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 4. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand, Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me. Because all of the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. You ever heard somebody say they have a hard head? Well, now you know where that comes from. You know, with Ezekiel, you've got to be wondering, okay, Lord, what's the purpose here? And it gets even more dramatic in Ezekiel. If you go later in the book to chapter 37, and you think Ezekiel's learned his lesson. And so God asks him a question. He sort of throws it back at God. Ezekiel, uh, God takes Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones. It's dead people. There's no flesh left on them. It's just a valley of dry bones out in the desert, kind of like an open-air cemetery. And he asked him this, Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? You think Ezekiel's figuring it out. He answers, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, first reading, it makes no sense. But that's evangelism. It makes no sense. How is it that you can tell somebody who's spiritually dead about the gospel and they can hear anything you say? It's not because you're convincing, it's not that you're persistent, and it's not that you're well-trained. It's not any of that. It's when the Spirit of God decides to move, he moves. God calls us to be faithful. He'll decide when to bring the return, when to bring the fruit, when to make the dead live, how much and how many. God calls us to faithfulness. God's people are simply responsible to obey. God's responsibility, God's business is the fruit or the results. And it's not just the case in the life of Moses. It's in the case of the lives of all the Old Testament prophets and the lives of the apostles in the New Testament and in the lives of every believer today. But sometimes people don't listen. And sometimes people reject what you have to say. And sometimes people challenge what you have to say. And sometimes people mock God. Sometimes people have a hardened heart. A hardened heart. Brings us to chapter 7, starting at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So in verses 1 through 7, God gives Moses and Aaron their marching orders. And then in verses 8 through 13, we begin to see this action play out. They're to go and repeat the call of God uh, to Pharaoh to release the people of Israel from bondage. But starting at verse 3, God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Although I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God is going to do it in order to execute judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt and display his power and his glory to the world. And so when they do go back to Pharaoh with this message from the Lord, they're required, just as God uh, anticipates they would be, to perform an authenticating miracle. So they cast Aaron's staff on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And if you remember, this was the same sign that God had given them back in chapter 4. It was so impressed all the elders of Israel. But look what happens now, verses 11 and 12. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts, each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. It's pretty clear that Pharaoh's not all that impressed. Why his wise men and magicians can perform precisely the same miracle many times over, and soon the ground is covered with serpents. Now, I don't know if you ever saw the DreamWorks animated classic, The Prince of Egypt, but this is one of the best scenes in the movie. See, there's two magicians come in, they're voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short. And they show up and confront Moses with their own miracles. And then they have this awesome song. And they say, so you think you've got friends in high places with the power to put us on the run? Well, forgive us these smiles on our faces. You'll know what power is when we're done, son. You're playing with the big boys now. You're playing with the big boys now. And I think they capture the scene. You remember the serpents, the emblem of Pharaoh, and you can almost see the sly grin spreading across Pharaoh's face. You know when this uh, they do this miracle and he has this mocking sneer. Oh, so Yahweh can turn a staff into a snake. Wait, do you see what the gods of Egypt can do? But then watch what happens. It's a very little phrase hidden in there. It's easy to skip over, but it's really, really, really important. Verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Something amazing happens, and the snakes of the Egyptian magicians are swallowed up. At least three things are going on when that happens. First of all, obviously, swallowed up is a sign of conquest and victory. We use that kind of language to describe conquests of one nation by another. They swallowed them up. When we see that language of swallowing up, we see God's forecast to Pharaoh of what he will do to him. Second, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 12, the song of Moses is being sung after his victory of Israel over Egypt at the Red Sea, after the destruction of the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, we're told, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. It's the only other time the verb swallow is used in Exodus. God is forecasting in the swallowing up of the snakes of the Egyptians, the swallowing up of the army of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Third, notice that the staff that swallows the snakes will be the staff, which is stretched out over the Red Sea, to bring the Red Sea crashing back and swallowing up the army of Egypt. Even that passage I just read, Exodus 15:12, speaks of stretching out the right hand, and what's in the right hand? The staff of God. So Moses takes this staff, and here it swallows up the snakes of the priests, the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and that same staff will be used to bring the waters of the Red Sea crashing down on the Egyptian army. The Lord is seen here not merely challenging Pharaoh's authority, not merely challenging Pharaoh's magic, but trumping his magic and forecasting what's going to happen on this conflict between Israel and Egypt that's coming. And he's letting them know that God is sovereign. The Lord reigns, and he's going to show that he is the Lord, and even Pharaoh's attempts to refute that lordship are going to prove to be futile. The Lord reigns. It's a dramatic picture of the victory of the power of God over every counterfeit claim of every false god. The Lord reigns, and those who stand against him will face his judgment. His victory is assured. That's the message to Pharaoh. If he gets into a conflict with the Lord, he will lose. And yet, verse 13 Though the message is crystal clear, we're forced to deal with verse 13 and realize that there is a possibility of salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. It says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. If the people of God don't listen because of discouragement and the servant of God doesn't listen because of fear, Pharaoh, the enemy of God, doesn't listen because his rebellious heart has been hardened. And to be clear, it's not just that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, which he has, but it's also that God has hardened his heart. And it's not just that Pharaoh didn't believe and therefore hardened his own heart, it's also that God hardened his heart so that he wouldn't believe. It's an act of God's judicial wrath upon this wicked man. It's an act that serves the wider designs of God's saving purpose. The Apostle Paul addresses this, actually, about 1,500 years later in Romans 9. In Romans 9, he says, What shall we say, then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God's not simply in the business. Stop. You need to listen carefully to this part. God's not simply in the business of taking away hard, stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh. God's not simply in the business of plucking sinners from destruction and bringing them into His saving mercy. He is also in the business of judicially hardening the rebel hearts of unrepentant sinners that they may be handed over to their own rebellion to face his wrath and curse forever. It is the most solemn moment in this passage. You see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there's a sober warning uh, for you today if you're not a Christian. Those who willfully deny the gospel may yet come to that point where they, in the judgment of God, are rendered incapable of responding to the gospel, even though they continue to hear it. God is going to get glory by you, whether by your judgment or by your deliverance. God will be glorified if you're judged, and he'll be glorified if you're saved. But God's going to be glorified either way by you. He will be exalted. He's going to be exalted in the judgment against Egypt. He told Pharaoh... I raised you up so that my name would be proclaimed in all the world, so that my power will be seen in all the world. We saw that in Romans 9. And yet he's going to be exalted in the deliverance of Israel. But those who persistently resist him may well find themselves hardened and incapable of responding to the offer of mercy when they hear it next. It's never safe to say, not yet, to the call of the gospel. Let me say that again. It's never safe to say not yet to the call of the gospel. God may yet harden your heart if you walk away from here refusing the claims of Christ. It's not too late. However, there may yet be time for you because the wrath and curse of God has already fallen on another so that it need not fall on you. God made His Son a perfect sin-bearer in your place. (coughs) God made His Son a perfect sin-bearer in your place. If you would but trust Him, put your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and receive Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. So don't expose your heart to the possibility of judicial hardening. Let Pharaoh's example warn you to flee from the wrath to come. There's a sober warning here. You know, but there's also real encouragement for the other two groups of people we mentioned, the people of God and, and uh, for the servants of the gospel here in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Remember the cause of Israel's rejection of God? They allowed their suffering to breed in them resentment to God's kindness. And when Moses spoke to them about what God's going to do, they took one look at Pharaoh, and they saw this unmoving tyrant. He seems to wield absolute dominion over their lives, and they're cynical about all possibility of salvation. But now we learn the truth. Pharaoh's heart is held in the hand of God, and God has been at work all along, even in their trials, to dispose of Pharaoh and to use Israel and Moses and Aaron for his glory, and for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And here we're reminded, the hearts of men and women, the hearts of everyone in this room are held in the hand of a sovereign God. And so every trial, every affliction, every difficulty that comes our way is not outside of his purpose, not beyond the reach of his arm. Not at all, but rather, we learn it's deployed in his wisdom and in his kindness. A strange, sore kindness to be sure, but kindness all the same. It's for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Likewise, Moses' insecurities and fears about thinking that he has to somehow convince Pharaoh all by himself. Well, now again, he's being told, no, Pharaoh's heart is my business. His heart is in my hand. Your task is to preach the words. My task is to deal with his heart. If you think about it, that's the antidote to insecurity. That's the antidote to fear about what others think think of you. It's not up to you. Your call is just to be faithful to whatever God's called you to do, whatever God's called you to say. You be faithful. How those other people react, that's God's business. And he's going to get the glory regardless. You be faithful to the task that God's given you. So we have three reasons not to listen. Discouragement among the people, insecurity and fear among the servants of God, and a hardened heart amongst the enemies of God. But behind them all, over them all, stands the perfect sovereignty of God himself, who works all things to give us peace, to dispel our fears, to get glory for his name in the salvation and judgment of everyone. Dr. James Hamilton has written a book called God's glory and salvation through judgment. And it's about that thick. But he traces this theme of deliverance through judgment from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And he says this Salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament becoming the paradigm for the Bible even into the New Testament. When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. And it's not limited to Old Testament enemies like the Philistines. Salvation for all believers or all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross. The cross allows God to be the one, uh, to save the one who has faith in Jesus through the judgment of God. We read that in Romans 3, actually. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So he might be just bring his judgment down, and the justifier, bring his salvation down to the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ, this climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment, is the turning point of the ages. The wrath and curse of God has already fallen on another, so it need not fall on you. God made his son a perfect sin bearer in your place if you would but trust in him, put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and receive Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. It's never safe to say, not yet, to the call of the gospel. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your warnings to us. Help us to listen lest titanic-like. We cruise on in ignorance and head into catastrophe. Please work on every heart here that none might be hardened, but all might be softened and drawn to Jesus. We ask that by your grace we would acknowledge your lordship willingly because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by faith, trusting in Jesus who is the saving and conquering Messiah. But we long at the same time, O Lord, for your name and your sovereignty and your lordship to be displayed throughout the world. Would you do this for your own great glory? Lead us to greater worship as you reveal yourself as Rescuer, Deliverer, Redeemer, and Savior. And for this we give you thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God bless you. We'll see you next week.